Well, here we are in Romans chapter 12. And uh, as I trust you detected, as Ransom read through Romans chapter 12, there's a big change at this stage in this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. For the first 11 chapters in the book of Romans, it's doctrine, 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 heavy doctrine. And that doctrine mainly has to do with the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And it's not that there wasn't application, there certainly was. But chapter 12 now marks a real turning point so that through chapters 12 and 16, so for the rest of the book of Romans, it's mainly application. And that is very intentional on the part of the Apostle Paul. We're going to come back and talk about that a little bit. But this is Paul's pattern in his writings. He, he sets forth doctrine, and not just any doctrine, but the doctrine of the gospel first. That's the foundation of Christian living. Then he gives us practical instruction. And just real briefly, the reason why that's so important I know a lot of churchgoers, they really prefer how-to, how-to this and how-to that, how to have good finances and a happy family life and marriage and all of the rest. There's a place for that as we're going to see. But if we have how-tos without the doctrine and especially the doctrine of the gospel, then we're reduced to moralism and worse Phariseeism, but in the Bible, uh, practical application flows from a right relationship with God through faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, Paul sets us that example. So uh, here we are, Romans chapter 12, and you'll notice that we're biting off a very small uh, portion this morning, just the first two chapters in Romans chapter 12, and that's because these two verses are foundational to the practical part of the book of Romans in chapters 12 through 16. So these verses by themselves are very foundational, and they're, they're packed, absolutely loaded with significance. Um, so I think it's important for us to take our time and uh, work our way through these words and milk this portion of God's word from the pen of Paul for, uh, for all that it's worth. So basically, Romans chapter 12, one and, verses 1 and 2, uh, lay the foundation for how to live out the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace that he so painstaking, painstakingly set before us in verse, uh, chapters 1 through 11, how to live out the gospel of grace. So the first thing he tells us, this is verse 1, is offer your whole self on the altar of God's service. Offer your whole self on the altar of God's service. Notice verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, Brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So here he is, he's, he's appealing to us as brethren, he's, he's exhorting us, and he says, therefore, and the therefore is there because of chapters 1 through 11. In other words, what follows now is the practical, logical conclusion of everything that Paul has been writing to this point. So go through chapters 1 through 11. Therefore, brothers, do this. And you'll notice that he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, literally God's great mercy. And that refers to the goodness of God, the goodness of God toward hell-deserving sinners, just like you and me, that he has been laying out to us in the rest of the book like God's kindness that we saw in Romans chapter 2. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. The, the patience of God as he endured with our sinfulness. Remember, Christians are like everybody else, born in a state of sin and rebellion against God. God is patient. And also we notice the love of God. And we saw in chapter 5 how God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And grace, sovereign grace that he sets before us so clearly in chapters 8 and 9 and 10 and 11. So God's great mercy. So his kindness, patience, love, and grace are all summed up in justification by faith. That's a great summary of what Paul wraps up in this phrase, by the mercies of God. So just to refresh your memory about something, justification by faith, look with me in Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul wrote, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's absolutely foundational and important. We can never forget that. And there's a tendency within each one of us, even as believers, to forget that. We need to remember, we will never, ever, ever be justified in God's sight. That is declared righteous, accounted as righteous before God because of our obedience to his law. Never. We will always be justified by faith alone. And then he adds in the second half of verse 20 that the reason for that is the law has no power to make us holy. 
The law has no power to justify us. All it can do is point out and highlight our sin, our guilt, but it can't make us right before God. And then notice verse 23, this plight applies to all of us for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if anyone is justified, if anyone is accounted as righteous in God's sight, it's the result of God's grace alone, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift, not something that is earned through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus redeemed us. Jesus did what was required for us to be reconciled to God, as Wes was pointing out. And how did Jesus do that? Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That word propitiation means that Jesus, in his death, satisfied the wrath of God that was directed towards us because of our sin. He solved it. He fulfilled it. He quenched it. It's all gone. For the believer, there is now no condemnation, no wrath, because Jesus is our propitiation. And then, second half of verse 25 to be received by faith. So we don't receive justification by our works, not even one. We receive this as a free gift through faith, through putting our trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that's, that's a reminder because Paul says in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So it's really ironic, I think, that on the one hand, there's nothing that we can ever do to merit our justification, to save ourselves, to win the favor of God, to, to bring ourselves into a right relationship with God. Nothing that we could ever do. Jesus did it all, even as we sang. But having done it all, which Jesus did, now, now the conclusion is that we owe Jesus all. It's, it's really ironic. There's nothing that we can do Jesus did it all. Now we owe Jesus everything. That's why the therefore makes sense. Because of everything that God has done in his mercy to save us, therefore do this. And by the way, what, he, what God requires of us is a very tall order. Notice what Paul goes on to say. This is what Paul appeals to us to do. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Present your bodies 
as a living sacrifice. Interesting. Doesn't call us to do this little thing or this list of things. He tells us to present nothing less than our bodies or our cells. We saw this earlier hinted at. Notice in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Verse 19. Second half of the verse. Paul wrote there, For just as you were, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. This is basically the same thing that he's saying in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 where we're commanded to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. What does he mean by that? Well, instead of presenting our members, the members of our bodies, which because of sin, we dedicate to the practice of sin, instead of that, we're to present our members, the members of our bodies, to righteousness leading to sanctification. But this whole idea of presenting or offering has a religious connotation to it, a connotation of worship. And that reminds us of what we saw in Romans chapter 1, that we're all worshipers. The question is, whom or what do we worship? Because of sin, it's our nature to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And an expression of that idolatry that we have by nature is that we basically sin our brains out. We commit the members of our body to practice sin religiously. This is what we do to serve our idols. And so what we used to present for lawlessness and idolatry and sin, now we are to present as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. And then back to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, it's not a dead sacrifice that we're called to offer, but a living sacrifice sacrifice. And Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 6 as well. In verse 4, for example, he said that we were buried, therefore, with Jesus by baptism into death. And that's not water baptism that literally does that, but it's the spiritual baptism that we go through, through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
And then notice verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the idea is, offer your whole self, your life, both body and soul, as a living sacrifice. The, the life that God gives us through union with Jesus Christ. Commentator F.F. F. Bruce wrote this. The sacrifices of the new order do not consist in taking the lives of others like it did under the old order, the old covenant, like the ancient animal sacrifices, he goes on, but in giving one's own. Jesus laid down his life for us. Now, we lay down our lives to serve him. Not to pay for our sins, not to contribute to our justification, but as our reasonable response to what Jesus has done for us. Then you'll notice, back in Romans chapter 12, Paul says that this living sacrifice is holy and acceptable to God. It's important for Christians to remember that God has called us to a holy calling. He's called us to live lives of, of uh, holiness. Um, we're not holy in and of ourselves. We're not holy by nature. We're sinful by nature. But when Jesus died on the cross for us, it's, it's true that um, he is the propitiation for our sins. So he paid the sacrifice to pay the debt that our sins required. But at the same time, Jesus also died to redeem us from every lawless deed and to enable us to become a holy people. That's why the apostle Peter, in repeating from the Le Le Levitical code, calls Christians to be holy even as God is holy. Never forget that we as believers are called to holiness. And this life of offering up ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy, is acceptable to God. Not as our judge, but as our heavenly father. Remember, he's our father, we're his children. And whatever we do, in faith, whatever we do in Christ, even if it's imperfect, even if it's not all there, it's not all that it should be, still, if it's done through Christ in faith, 
it is acceptable to God and pleases God. Then Paul says at the end of verse 1, he says, which is your spiritual worship? And I know that some of your versions uh, say reasonable service. And I'm not going to dig too much into this for you. I did the digging myself. And spiritual worship is the most literal translation of the, uh, the Greek here. But it's a little awkward, frankly. And it's a, it's a legitimate translation to say reasonable service. So frankly, and who am I? <laughs> but frankly, I wish that the ESV translators would have just gone with the traditional rendering here. Um, granted, it's more literal to say spiritual worship, but it's just awkward. We don't talk that way. So what does he mean? Paul basically is saying that um, this, is, this is rational, genuine, true worship. When we offer up ourselves to the Lord this way, this is what we ought to do. This is what is true. This is what is genuine. This is what is reasonable. God does not call us to something that is unreasonable. And then you'll notice that it is called worship. And this is good for us to be reminded that worship is not limited to what we do in church after the electricity is restored. Worship is something that we're called to every single day of our lives. And the idea is that it's not just that there are moments in our days when we pause and thank God and pray, maybe uh, think of a passage of scripture and sing a song, something like that. That's all legitimate and good. But that's not even what Paul is talking about. He means literally our daily lives. What, whatever we do for Jesus and in Jesus, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God and God views it as worship, an act of worship. Whatever you do in body and soul, commentator Douglas Moo gave this remark. The sacrifice we offer is not some specific form of praise or service, but our bodies themselves. It is not only what we can give that God demands. He demands the giver. He wants us. He demands us, our whole selves, and it's reasonable for him to do that. Remember the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. It's reasonable. So this is our reasonable service, and it's an indication of the, genuine, the genuineness of our faith. Do you understand God's great mercy 
from Romans chapters 1 through 11, then does your life reflect this kind of reasonable service to God in response? All right, moving on. That was the first way in which we live out the gospel of grace. Offer your whole self on the altar of service to God. Then in verse 2, Paul writes, Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He says more than that. But that's the main idea. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So in verse 1 that we just saw, that is mainly a specific act in which we offer ourselves to God. But now in verse 2, we're going to see an ongoing activity. And in verse 2, there's a negative exhortation and a positive exhortation. Here's the negative part. Do not be conformed to this world. And for you who have some knowledge of New Testament Greek, you might be aware that there are two words in the Greek that are translated world. One of them is the word uh, cosmos that refers more to the physical world. And the other word is, is eon or ion, which loosely translated means, means age. And that's the word that Paul uses here, ion or age. Do not be conformed to this world or age. Well, why is that? Well, a couple of reasons from Paul. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And note verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. The kind of wisdom that the Apostle Paul passed along was not something that you can go and figure out from the Greek philosophers. Not something that you can go and figure out from the philosophers of our own day. It's not just common sense. It transcends common sense. It transcends wisdom of this age. It transcends the wisdom of man. Because it comes from God himself. And you'll notice that one of the aspects of this age that makes it not worthy to invest in, in verse 6, 1 Corinthians 2, is that these people are doomed to pass away. So what, whatever wisdom you might glean from the rulers of this age is coming to you from people who are passing away. They're passing away. This world is passing away. Their supposed wisdom is passing away. So don't value it. 
Don't put too high of a price tag on it. Verse eight, none of the rulers of this age, there's that same word again, eon or ion. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's why the folks who participated in, in the crucifixion of Jesus did what they did. They only understood the wisdom of this age, not the wisdom of God through the gospel. And then in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4, I'll just read that. Jesus gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age. So no wonder in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, do not be conformed to this age. It's passing away and it's evil by nature. It's opposed to God. It's at war with God. And so why would a Christian pay attention to the wisdom of this age? And you know that it's the case that we are under constant pressure to be conformed to the wisdom of this age, right? There's constant pressure for us to conform to the world's philosophy of morality, what's right and wrong, to the world's philosophy about who or what God is, to the world's philosophy about salvation and, and sin, to the world's philosophy about how to use our bodies. Our world has a lot to say to us, and it's saying a lot to us every single day. Its goal is to get us into its mold. And as Christians, we're supposed to resist that. Fight against that. Resist being uh, forced into the mold of this fallen world system that is in opposition to God. So that's the negative admonition. Do not be conformed to this world or age, but positively be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That word transformed, you'll, you'll recognize it. It's the word metamorpho. It's a verb. It's a command. But can you hear the word metamorphosis in it? That's what it is. The, the Greek word metamorpho gets transliterated into the English and we just get metamorphosis. That's why you see the monarch butterfly up there, who's a, a great example from nature of a metamorphosis, this, this transformation. And the apostle Paul says that the, the Christian life by which we resist being conforming, being conformed to the world, 
And by which, by the way, we become a living sacrifice to begin with is nothing short of a metamorphosis, a complete and total body and soul transformation. And it begins at conversion. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. A new relationship with God. A new desire to know God, to walk with God, to please God, to glorify God. A a new outlook on life a new standard of morality, not what the world imposes on us, but what God has revealed to us. New. And in Titus chapter three and verse five, God has saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so this renewal of your mind is not something that you do in and of yourself. Your fallen mind, remember, by the way, that Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that the carnal mind is enmity against God. The carnal mind cannot transform itself. The carnal mind cannot renew itself. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Our minds are renewed by the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit himself. And so this transformation begins at conversion and then it continues throughout the Christian life as our minds are continually renewed. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, which is very nostalgic to me because uh, when we first visited Riverside Bible Church in August or September, whenever it was, of 1990, And uh, I had no desire to go there. I went there because my wife wanted me to go. And I'm eternally grateful that that we did. But Pastor Steve Hartland was preaching through Ephesians at that time. And he was in chapter 4. And I'll I'll never forget it. I, I had never heard anything like it. Somebody standing up and opening the Bible and explaining it and applying it with passion and rationality. God used that. To save me. Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, notice what Paul writes starting in verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ, as in living a life of sensuality and, and greediness and impurity. That's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And here's what God has taught us. To put off your old self, 
which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And he goes on to verse 24, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The reason I'm pointing this out to you is that there is a sense in which this uh, renewal of our minds, this being renewed in the spirit of your minds, takes place once definitively at our conversion. But at the same time, it continues throughout the Christian life just as it is important for us to continually put off the old self and to put on the new self, so it is important for for us to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And so the transformation continues throughout the Christian life. And to what end? For what purpose? What's God's goal? Back to Romans 12 and verse 2, Paul says that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Turns out that testing that you may discern is one word in the Greek. And it basically means to try to learn the genuineness of something by examination and testing, often through actual use. That's from the the Lu Nida Greek English lexicon of the New Testament. And the emphasis here in in Paul's words uh, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God the emphasis here is not on testing and discernment regarding false teachers and false prophets, but testing and discernment regarding practical Christian living in the real world. In other words, so here I am, I just heard the gospel the gospel of justification by faith alone in Jesus alone. And I've come to a place of turning from my way, my sin to Jesus. I've placed my trust in him. I'm depending on Jesus to make me right with God. And now I'm committed to following Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Now begins the lifelong process of testing and discerning what the will of God is for me. In other words, living out, living out my new faith in a very practical way. And by the way, this doesn't mean necessarily either Specific decisions in our lives, like should I take this job or that job or move to this place or that place or have this 
um, romantic interest or what have you. Those things are informed by the word of God because there are always moral implications and we should make sure that in any decision that we make, we're always in conformity with God's revealed will. But this has to do mainly with God's moral law, his revealed will. And that's what he says next here, the will of God. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. This is not mainly his providential will, but it means his will of commandment. God's standard of right and wrong. Here's an example. 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. That is the will of God, our sanctification. And then Paul concludes by saying that by this continual process of the renewal of our minds and testing, that we may discern what is the will of God, and the result will be a walk that is good and acceptable and perfect. It'll be in conformity with God's law, which is holy, righteous, and good, Romans 7 and verse 12, and perfect. Jesus said in Matthew 5 and verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That doesn't mean that Christians will ever attain uh, a state of sinless perfection in this life. That is actually the goal. We're supposed to be striving for perfection. We're not supposed to allow moral compromise in our lives, but a fuller definition of uh, perfect, while it doesn't mean not sinless, it does mean complete, comprehensive, without partiality or compromise. And remember, that's what God calls us to. This is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So that's what Paul says, a couple of brief takeaways for us. If you're an unbeliever, it's a good time for you to be reminded, I trust that you've heard stuff like this before, maybe you haven't. It's a good time for you to hear that being a Christian, becoming a Christian, is not about a mere religious act in church. It's not about a feeling. It's not about a a physical response that we can all see. It's not even about kicking bad habits or turning over a new leaf. The Bible describes sinners like you, sinners like me, becoming believers, becoming Christians in dramatic language like a new birth, being born again. 
like being dead and then being raised to, do, to new life. Like being in darkness and then coming to light. A total transformation, a metamorphosis. That's what it means to become a Christian. And God's invitation is come to him. Come to Christ and be saved. He will transform you. And then for believers, this passage reminds us, among other things, that we must resist the pressure from the world to be conformed to its pattern. As soon as we walk out these doors, maybe sooner, you know what, what it's like. Whether it's through entertainment, whether it's through our friends and neighbors and coworkers, maybe even other family members, politics, whatever. The, the world is constantly pressing in on us and trying to conform us to its pattern. <coughs> Pardon me. We must resist. We must constantly be counteracting the influence of the world by the renewal of our minds. And how do we do that? Well, that's one reason why we come to church on Sundays. We, we, we need this time in the word of God together for the renewal of our minds. Christian fellowship, we need one another to encourage and admonish one another for the renewal of our minds. Our own daily walk with God, we need to meditate in God's law day and night for the renewal of our minds. May God help us to glorify him as we respond in faith to his word. Let's pray.